take your Bibles and open to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Our text will begin at verse number 22. And this scripture really takes us to a place that's just overflowing with spiritual lessons. There are times when we take the Bible and we just hold it in our hands and we look at it and maybe we turn it upside down and then look at it sideways and say, what is it that God is really, what is he really saying to me in this particular passage? And sometimes we struggle with what God wants to tell us. And I'll admit to you as a pastor, sometimes when preaching verse by verse that we'll come to certain scriptures in our study and I wonder how am I ever going to make a message out of that? How how am I going to get across what will help people and really be what the Lord wants us to know? Well, this is not one of those times. This is one of those passages of Scripture that are just so loaded with information that it becomes a process of elimination trying to figure out what I should say and what I should leave out. And I don't know if that's a bad thing or not. I think any lesson that we learn from the Word of God is an important one, but I have to, at some point, decide, well, there are some things I have to leave out. I can't tell you everything there is to know here because to do so would mean we probably wouldn't get done with this study before the end of the millennium. So I have to just kind of condense some things and give you what you can learn here, even though we're, we are going to look at the passage closely and extensively. And I'll admit to you also that this is a time when the preacher preaches to himself as well as he does to the people. So we're going to look at one of the really rich text that's in the Bible, and it's also a very familiar one. We're going to start at verse number 22 in Matthew 14. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read Matthew 14, beginning at verse number 22. And straightway, Jesus constrained the disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, speak to our hearts today as we open up this text and help us to learn what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my message today is walking on water. And I don't suppose that there's any miracle that Jesus did that's more remembered than this one, the time that he walked on water. 
This miracle is recorded twice in the other Gospels, but Matthew is the only one, though, that really uh, looks at this and shows us Peter in the passage and shows us that Peter actually walked on water. And this is really a famous story because that phrase, walking on water, has become a metaphor for doing the impossible. I remember when I was little that my mom would be busy about cleaning the house and doing the dishes and cooking the meals, keeping all the house up as she should. And I would go to her and I would ask her for something and I was very impatient about things. And so I might say something, I want this. And she would look at me and ignore me for a moment. I'd say, no, I want this. And she would look at me again and she had all this work to do and everything that she was going on with there in the house. And she would say, what do you want me to do? Walk on water? And that was a term that meant that I can't do that. I can't do what you want. It's impossible because there's just too much to do. Walking on water is equated with impossible situations. It's something that we just cannot do. You know, I've dreamed often that I could walk on water. I mean, I I don't know any of us that hasn't at some time or another walked up to the edge of a swimming pool or on the edge of a lake or on the beach, and you've stood there watching the waves as they crash in, and you think, what if I could just walk on the water? What if I could just take off across this lake and walk as if I was on land? What proves that we can't do it? The first step. You take the first step, and you know you can't walk on water. Well, this story actually proves that it can be done. And you say, oh, oh, well, of course it can be done. It takes deity to do it. It takes someone like Jesus who has the power of God. And you're right about that. It takes the power of God, and that's why it was not impossible for Peter. Now, you notice in the text, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about it next week because we're not going to get uh, this that far today, but Peter stepped out of the boat, and he actually did walk on water. Well, sometimes we look at the faith of Peter and we criticize him because he began to sink. Well, he walked on water, didn't he? And not any of us have ever done that. No one has done that. So Peter stepped out of that boat and he walked on water. And that's because he had the power of God or else he wouldn't have been able to take that first step. Now, one of the major lessons I think that we learn from this story is that we, we need to depend on God in a very conscious way. And I say conscious because every day that we live our lives, it's actually a miracle of God's providence. Every breath that we take, every bite of food that we eat, uh, everything that we enjoy in life, it's all by the providence of God. It's all by God's power. And we wouldn't have the power to do any of that except God should give it to us. But all of those things we consider to be normal things. They're, They're things that everybody enjoys everything things that everybody has and and we we talk about those things as being acts of God's providence or we could call them the acts of God's common grace that he provides for everyone so all people enjoy these things and they're not really conscious of the fact that God is the one who supplies all of that for us that God is the provider but there comes time there comes a time many times perhaps in our lives where we realize that we have to go beyond the capabilities of the common grace that God gives. And we can't take things into our own hands. We don't have the resources to do them. And for those people that are not Christians, they're stuck right in that position. There's no place for them to go. 
There's no one to help because every person is limited by the physical and by the natural. Whereas on the other hand, a person who is a Christian has all the power that he ever needs to meet all of his challenges in life. He has a supernatural ability given by his faith in Jesus Christ. And he can exercise that faith and he can overcome by always learning to look and lean on Jesus. Now, in this story, the disciples are brought to to that point. This miracle was actually designed to cause them to be absolutely sure that Jesus was the only resource they ever needed. Now, if you were present for our message last week and heard about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which actually we showed mushroom to probably 15 or 20,000 people, you would think, well, surely the disciples have learned the lesson there that, that Jesus is able to do anything. If you just depend upon him, Jesus can take care of all problems. But they hadn't yet learned that lesson. And here we see in this story that it takes a near-death experience to make them absolutely sure that if there is any hope for them, it has to come from the one who has all power and authority, and that person is Jesus Christ. And the fact that God designed this miracle for that particular purpose is found in the first verse of our reading and in the last verse. Verse number 22 says, Jesus constrained the disciples to get into the ship. That means he made them go, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. And then in the end of verse number 33, our last verse, the result of Jesus forcing these disciples to get into that boat was the confession, was worship and confession that he is the Son of God. And between verses 22 and 33, we find every particular is guided by the hand of God to bring the disciples to the place that they can learn nothing is impossible with God. And folks, that's the lesson for us to learn as well. There is nothing that is impossible with God. Don't grieve over the circumstances that you're in because one thing we learn about God, if we learn nothing else, is that when things are at their worst, that's when God is always at his best. Now let's start putting the story together and Along the, along the way here, we're going to learn some valuable lessons and see what the disciples learned. There are three major lessons that I want to show you. This is a three-point sermon, and three-point sermons are always the best for some reason. But it's a three-point sermon, but I'm not going to get to all three points today. We're just going to concentrate on the first one and then some sub-lessons that are also to be learned as we go. So lesson number one that we want to talk about today is the power of Jesus' presence, the power of his presence. The first thing that Jesus had to do to teach the disciples the power of his presence was to get them away from him. He had to get them away in order to teach them complete dependence. So they had to feel what it was like. What is it like to be in a very, very bad situation and not have Jesus with you? And so we find them in verse number 22 telling the disciples to get into the boat and leave. Now, we're using the King James translation of the Bible, and they did a very, very good job of translating this verse. Our, our version reads, constrained. He constrained them to get into the boat. There are other versions that say made, and made conveys the meaning somewhat, but it's not really strong enough to really uh, get the point across of how Jesus did this. This means that Jesus gave them no other choice. 
They must get in the boat. And there's no ifs, there are no ands, no buts allowed here. Jesus simply says to them, you guys are going to get in this boat. And they said, but we know you're going to get into the boat. And they said, but we would rather know you're going to get into the boat. And they argued perhaps with them, but Jesus said, this is a command. I'm telling you, get into the boat. Now, for the secret behind all of this, we need to look at, they were going away from the physical place where Jesus was, but they were never actually out of his presence. They thought that they were. They felt that they were. Now, eventually, they would, they would feel helpless that they were going to die, but Jesus arrived at the worst moment when it looked like there was no hope. Jesus was there. When they were pushed to the max and they had no way out, Jesus was there to help them. Now, here's the first sub-lesson that we learn in this, and that is it's always best to obey without question. It's always best to obey what Jesus says. And I have, a, I have the feeling that the disciples were, were very reluctant to get into the boat. They weren't very keen on leaving Jesus, especially after that last miracle where he fed all of the multitude. And I'll explain that a little bit further in just a moment. But they were also reluctant because it's likely that they felt that there was a storm that was coming. They didn't want to risk being out on the Sea of Galilee when there was a storm coming. You ever felt a storm in the air? You ever smelled a storm before it started? Uh, back in Kentucky, that was uh, we had storms that would arise very quickly, especially in the, in the summertime with all the humidity. We'd have storms come up very quickly. And sometimes you, just, you could just smell that storm coming. You get, the, you get the feeling the air gets a little bit cold, a little bit of rush of cold air, and, and you feel that. Well, I think the disciples probably felt the same. They were very familiar with how quickly that storms could come on the Sea of Galilee. They could tell when one was brewing, and it wouldn't be a good time for sailing. And folks, these are people that stayed away from the Sea of Galilee when they knew a storm was coming. Now, they had, you may not realize this, but they had weathermen just like we had weathermen. Only they didn't watch Channel 5 or whatever channel you prefer to watch to get it. But they were used to looking at the sky to see and predict the weather. Jesus said to the Pharisees in the 16th chapter, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather for today, foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? So they could look at the sky and they could say, well, that looks like conditions are getting right for a storm to come. They weren't ignorant of weather forecasting. And as I've explained before throughout our study of Matthew, the Sea of Galilee has a very special set of weather circumstances. The lake is about 700 feet below sea level. That allows for the water there to warm up. And when the wind is blowing in from the west, the cool air from the Mediterranean comes over the mountains and it hits those little ravines that, and channels down towards the water and the hot air is rising and there's this violent clash and there are thunderclouds that form, there are lightning strikes, the winds become excessive and that little lake there can appear to be just like a raging ocean, a fierce storm on that, on that sea was a very dangerous thing. And these disciples knew plenty of people that went out in the storm and never came back. So I'm sure that they were reluctant about this. On calm days, 
such as the day that Gary and I were out on the Sea of Galilee, you would never imagine that anything like this could happen. But if you, if you ever get a chance, check out some of the... Anybody ever heard of YouTube? Check out YouTube sometime for the Sea of Galilee, and there are tourists and so on have taken uh, videos of the Sea of Galilee when a storm comes. And it's amazing how, how high the waves can become on the Sea of Galilee. So all these disciples knew the sea. All of them were Galileans except Judas. Some of them were fishermen. And so they knew how quickly that a good situation could turn bad. So it may have been that the disciples sensed this and they didn't want to get into the boat. But Jesus compelled them. He, he constrained them to get in. And it's an it's important point here. The important point is that with all of their objections that they had against getting into the boat, they still obeyed what Jesus said. And then after they got out on the water, I'm sure that they had to be thinking, why did Jesus tell us to do this? We never should have got into this boat. But then they fought back on that forcefulness that Jesus used when he commanded them. He wasn't going to allow any excuses, wasn't going to allow them to make objections that would keep them from going. Jesus told them to do this, and not getting into the boat would be to disobey Jesus. Do you ever find that that's one of the puzzling problems of obeying the Lord? That we obey him, and still we find ourselves in the middle of problems? There are terrible storms that come in our lives and we think, well, we're in the wrong place and we're at the wrong time. But we should never presume upon God. There, there are storms that come into our lives sometimes because of our disobedience to him. But you as a Christian need to realize too, and you probably do, that there are also storms that come in the best of your obedience. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. God told him that, He was going to be a witness in Rome, but the way that Paul got there was not his preferred method. Paul went as a prisoner, and the Bible shows that if Paul had left things to his own will, perhaps to his own circumstances, if he'd planned his own way, he would not have been a prisoner, and he wouldn't have got to Rome. But Paul ended up, he he obeyed God, he stood strong, and he ended up as a prisoner. Then he was put on a ship to go to Rome, and in the middle of that journey, there was a storm that arose, and there was no way out of it. The sailors began to throw away the cargo on the ship to lighten the load in order in an attempt to, to save the ship, but that didn't wasn't working. And so in the middle of the night, there was an angel that appeared to Paul and said, don't worry about it, you will lose the ship but none of you will lose your lives. Often, our lives are like that. You read and you pray and you do your very best to trust the Lord and you find yourself in the middle of an impossible situation. Nowhere to go, no way out. And that's when you really begin to feel the presence of Jesus. There's comfort in that because it's then that you know that God is with you I can't explain that to unbelievers. I can't make you really see that because you'll never know how this feels to have the presence of God with you in those dark nights. Now, in the message next week, as we look a little closer at this, we're going to look at how dark the night can really become. And in those darkest moments, Jesus is there to give you the help that you need. Now, the disciples were weak in faith at times. We've already learned that as we've gone through this gospel. They were in the process of learning and the process of training. They hadn't fully 
come to reliance completely upon Jesus. And so here, though, we see them obeying. And they obey him still when it became very difficult to obey. If you go down to verse number 24, the scripture says, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, this was really an odd moment because the disciples intended to take just a short journey. They weren't intending to go through the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Their intention was to cut across the northern part. They had been um, in the northern part, on the northeastern part of the lake. That's where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place. That was at Bethsaida, Julia, is what that's called. And they were in the northwestern part, and they intended to cross over to the northeastern part, which would have been, at best, two or three hours if they were having any kind of difficulty. But here they are, and they're now pushed into the midst of the sea. Verse number 24 says they're in the middle, and they had been rowing up to nine hours trying to get to where they were supposed to go, pushed by the wind, the wind blowing against them. It was contrary, the Word of God says. And so they've been rowing all night against the wind. And I don't know how many have ever rowed a boat before, but I've tried that a few times, and I don't get very far. I row for maybe 10 minutes, and I'm done. Uh, These fellows were out there for nine hours with the wind in their face, rowing against that wind, trying to get where Jesus told them to go. And I can imagine the arms are about ready to fall off. Well, what would have been the easy thing to do? Turn your back to the wind. Go back where you came from. But these disciples didn't do that. They kept rowing and they kept pushing. They wanted to get to the place where Jesus told them to go. Now, there's a very simple truth in that. And that is, if you don't obey Jesus, then you're not going to experience God's blessings. And you won't experience the lessons he has for you to learn. And you won't experience his power. You must obey him. Now, that was very valuable information, and you have to remember that all these things that the disciples are going through, it's the training process. It's, a, it's to get them ready for all the hardships that they would face as ministers of the gospel. Sometimes they would face very difficult storms, storms of death, storms of persecution, storms of uh, contempt from people that they witnessed to and They had to face those storms and endure them because if they hadn't, there's not a one of us that would be sitting in this church today. We owe this to the disciples, or we owe our presence here to the disciples because they were willing to stick out storms and they remained faithful to the Lord. Now, let me return to something very important for our understanding. Jesus also compelled them to get into the boat because of the aftermath of the miraculous feeding. The disciples didn't want to go because now Jesus had experienced a groundswell of support. Jesus uh, had done a miracle there, and the people were were so supportive of this, they began to turn to Jesus. Now, I want you to look at John chapter 6. We read some of John 6 last week in in conjunction with his study. In John chapter 6, we find a little bit more information. Our text in Matthew says Jesus constrained them, which conveys a sense of urgency for them to go right away. But they didn't want to go. And we can see comparing Matthew to John some of the reasons. At the end of that feeding, John six fourteen says, Then those men, that means those that were in the crowd that were fed, then those men 
when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, which should come into the world. And then going to verse 15, the story after the story, the, or to the story of the walk on the water, the 15th verse says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So again, Jesus is at the very height of his popularity. He had all the ingredients the people wanted. He could heal them of their diseases. He could make their lives better. And best of all, he could feed them. And we went through that earlier. Getting enough food was always uh, an ongoing problem, not an easy task. And so if someone could solve that problem for them, this is the person that they want to become king. And Jesus recognized that. And so before they could forcibly take him and make him a king and upset the plans for the cross, he had to put a stop to that. Would Jesus allow them to make him a king then? Well, the only way that he wanted to be a king was if people received him by faith. He only wanted to be a king when they trusted him by to save them by his power and save them from their sins. But we find these people are not interested in sin. They're not interested in the will of God. They're not interested in what God is doing. They're after Jesus because he fed them. And if you go down to verses 25 and 26 there, you can see Jesus' reply when they started looking for him again. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So in other words, they don't look for him because he's God. They don't look for him because he's the one that can give them eternal life. They're not looking for Jesus because they're so interested in glorifying him. They were after him because he could fill their bellies. And in that statement, we find another lesson learned because Jesus shot down a gospel that says that God is interested in physical fulfillment. His gospel does not include your financial prosperity. The gospel is for the glory of God, and your salvation is for the glory of God. It's, 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 salvation is not your opportunity to make it big in the world. It, it's not for you to drive fine cars and to fly first class. And it doesn't have anything at all to do with finding your best parking spot at the mall, as one popular preacher says. But returning to this thought, the disciples did not want to get into the boat because what was happening at that moment was exactly what they were waiting for. All along, they've been asking questions about the kingdom. Jesus, when are you going to start acting like a king? When are you going to take your position as a king over everybody? And especially, when are you going to give us our individual positions of authority? And this was the best chance to date. The people, are, there's, there's a movement here to try to make Jesus a king. And so the disciples say, seize on that opportunity. Make it happen. And so Jesus was anxious to get him out of that place so his own disciples don't join a mob that would make him a king, forcibly make him a king. And if they had done that, the gospel would have been doomed. There would have been an immediate clash with Rome, and that was not the time. It was not the plan. And his disciples are still wet behind the ears, and they were just prone to join in a devilish scheme such as that. See, that's why it's best to obey. You can't see as far as God can see. You don't, you don't know where the next step is going to lead. God knows. As I said in a Wednesday service a few weeks ago, God sees around corners. 
God knows what's going to happen. He plans the end result, and he plans the way to get there. You can't run ahead of God. And so what you need to do is stay in the proper place and be a follower of Jesus, or you're going to end up in trouble. We have a song, an old song, that I don't guess we've sung in a while, but it says, Trust and Obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. They didn't want to get in the boat because they were leaving the one who took care of them, the one who took care of all these other people, and they had not yet learned that wherever they were, Jesus would be with them. Now let me cover one more lesson before we end the message today. And there are so many practical ones, as I've said. I've had to just kind of eliminate some of these so we don't spend all of our time in the next few weeks in this one passage. But next is the purpose of Jesus' prayer. Let's go back to Matthew. Uh, our text says in verse number 23, Matthew fourteen twenty-three, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. He sent the multitudes away. Now, last week, if you were here for the message, you know that I made a a special point about this, that the disciples wanted to send the crowds away. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, Jesus wants to send crowds away. And my point last week is, if you want your problem solved, if if those people wanted to be fed, then they can't be sent away. The disciples shouldn't send them away. Bring them to Jesus. But this is a different set of circumstances. Then it was wrong to send them away. Now it's the right thing to do because the crowds are pushing him to be a king. And I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He sends them away. Now how is he able to do that? How is he able to control what's very likely going to turn into be a mob action? How does he control that? He just says, go. Just go. There are no arguments. There, there, there are no protests about this. They had no power to do anything to him until he was ready for it to be done. And we know that when they finally did do something, when Jesus allowed it, they didn't want to make him a king. They crucified him. And they didn't crucify him until he was ready for it. Not until the disciples learned more lessons like this to be totally dependent upon his power. So Jesus went to the mountain alone to pray. And that is significant because this shows Jesus in his humanity. He he, he sent the crowd away. He fed the crowd. Both of those are demonstrations of his deity. And now he goes to pray. And there is a demonstration of his humanity. That Jesus was a man that he needed to pray. And believe me, folks, if the Son of God needed to pray, you and I need to pray. We need to pray. That was his custom, to spend long hours in prayer, gaining strength for every day. And so in his flesh, he needed that refreshment of spiritual strength that comes by prayer. And there was much for him to pray for. The disciples had just left. He he knew what was in store for them. He knew what was going to happen on the sea. And so he interceded for them that they would be kept safe until his purpose was fulfilled, until they learned the lesson they needed to learn. And if you realize this, that this is the way that you are kept safe from harm, as a child of God, you are kept safe because Jesus intercedes for you. Satan is there all the time to try to knock you down, to try to shake you up and try to destroy your faith by any means possible. 
Ephesians chapter 6 says that he is a wily character. That means he has many different avenues of attack. First Peter says he's like a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. Revelation 12 says that he accuses us before the throne of God day and night. Satan is relentless in his attack. Lesson learned from that, you're no match for Satan. You can't stand on your own. What you need is the intercession of Jesus Christ. He is actually the one that keeps you from falling into hell at any moment. You are kept by the power of God until your final salvation, and that's because Jesus is always interceding for you. I think about the time when Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. He was always praying for the Father to keep us. But I think there is another subject for Jesus' prayer. I think that Jesus was probably going through another personal temptation. Do you remember how that Satan came to him in Matthew chapter 4 and tempted him? This was when Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food. And if there was any time that he was weak in his flesh, that would have been it. So Satan came and he tried to crush Jesus and cause him to sin against the Father. And we can argue another time about whether it was actually possible for him to sin under that temptation. But I can tell you this much, the temptation was real. And Satan tried to get him to break under that pressure. And one of the temptations that Satan used was to try to get him to accept the kingdoms of the world right then and be made a king. Remember the conversation in Matthew 4, it went this way. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And do you know what that was? That was an attempt to get Jesus to refuse the Father's plan of the cross. An attempt to get him to bypass the cross and to accept a crown right then. You know what would have happened if Jesus had yielded for his own benefit? What would have happened if he accepted that temptation or did what Satan said? There'd be no salvation. There would be no cross, that's for sure, and there would be no salvation And there's none of us that would ever see anything but a fiery furnace of hell if he'd accepted the offer. Now, if you ever doubt Jesus' compassion for you, compassion for sinners, just know what he had to endure and what he gave up in order to make our salvation possible. And he sent these disciples away in what looked like was a very bad and harmful situation for them. And he sent them away to teach them about dependence and for him to go along to pray so that he would resist the devil one more time. Because Jesus had been presented with another offer to skip the cross. Just go straight to being a king. You know what that tells us? It tells us that God wasn't in the crowd. God wasn't in this crowd that was continually pushing Jesus to become the king and and, and constantly after him. They were after Jesus for the food. Satan's the one who's behind all the clamor, and this is why largely the people never accepted Jesus. They never trusted him for eternal life. Well, sure, they'll trust their bellies to him, but they're not going to surrender their minds and their will to him. So what's the easy way out? For Jesus, it's to let them 
carry him on their shoulders, to hoist them up and take him through the crowds and take him to Jerusalem and put him on a pedestal, not on a cross. But Jesus went to the mountain to pray for help from his father to resist Satan. Folks, you need to know that our salvation rests as much upon the prayers of Jesus Christ as it does upon the cross. You can't have one without the other. Do you see how much he's willing to do for us? We look at the problems that we face, we look at the storms that we have, and we think, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when I need him the most? You know, you know where he is? He's up on the mountain. He's up there praying that you'll be kept safe. He's up there interceding for you until you learn the lesson that you need to pray for the power of his presence. He's never taken his eye off of us. When we, when we come to the very end of the last resource, he will be there. He comes at the right time. See, you don't know what Jesus is doing when you're in your storm. You don't know what he's doing to bring you out. He's working and working and working all of the time to give you the lessons that will strengthen you for the next storm that you face. You know, it's sad that we, that we don't always learn the lesson the first time. And if we do learn it, that we forget it. And then the lesson has to be taught all over again. It's always best to obey Jesus even when you see the storm brewing. It's always best to obey him even though you even smell the storm in the air. And there are some people that think, well, what if I obey Jesus? How am I going to deal with my family? What will my family say? They're, they're against Christ. What will they say if I obey Jesus? Some people say, well, what will it mean to my job? What, what will happen there if I, if I obey Jesus? Then what's going to happen with my job? And some say, what will happen for my, for my happiness if I obey him? How am I going to be happy? There are things that I want so badly right now, and, and I can disobey God, and I can have them now. What about my happiness if I obey Jesus? Young people run into these kinds of problems. Uh, young girls, young boys, I want this person so badly. He's not a Christian, but I want him so badly. I want her so badly. I want them now, and, and I can give in, and I can have my pleasure now. What happens if I refuse that person? And we struggle with issues like that, and I can tell you what happens when you obey Christ. God brings you through it, and you'll be satisfied with Jesus, you'll understand even more that he loves you and that he gave his life for you. See, there's so much to learn in this story. So many lessons that are here. We, we just really need to give it the time that it deserves. But I want to stop there today. And what I would like you to do just for a moment here is just to bow your heads for a minute for prayer. And there might be somebody in our service today that you're going through a terrible storm. There's a conflict in your life. You don't know what you're going to do. You're a Christian, and you're just stuck. You, you don't know what will happen next, and so you need somebody to pray with you. You need somebody to encourage you in your faith. Or we'll have people in the back that are happy to speak with you and to take you and pray with you. And then perhaps there are some that are in a storm, and you never expected to see Jesus come to you walking on the water because you've never experienced his saving power. You never had any hope that Jesus would still your storm, and that's because you've never bowed to him. You've never received him. You've never repented of sin. You've never confessed and asked him to help you and save you from your sins. 
scriptures teach that he is the helper of all who come to him, the ones that come to have burdens lifted, to have sins forgiven. He's the Savior who died on the cross that we might be cleansed from our sins. So we want to help people to understand better how, how they can become Christians, how, how they can be on their way to heaven. And so we're, our prayer room, our help is open for you. If you just uh, step back there at any time and say, I need some help here. I, I need someone to pray with me. I've got a storm that I'm going through. God, help me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And there are so many lessons, as we've stated, to be to be to be seen in this passage of scripture Lord we know that obeying you is always the best and we can't see the outcome of, of our obedience many times we, we think that if I do the right thing then nothing good's going to happen and maybe there are some in a storm that they're in the middle and just saying well I've done all I can I've obeyed the best I know how but I, I can't still can't see the way out well, Lord we want to help people we want to pray with them we want them to put all of their faith and trust in you, rely on you to help them through the storms. And then we think of those that aren't saved and have no one to call on. There, there is no hope for any person if he doesn't go to the one who has all power to relieve him of all burdens and take away all sins and give the comfort and peace in the heart that's needed. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to some soul today and may you show them the way of life Christians, may they become strong in their dependence upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.